Bob DePasquale was diagnosed with cancer and experienced a terrible act of terrorism within only a few days. He thought the world was coming to an end. I never ever give up hope. Today I have Bob DePasquale and you are going to love his story. Many will relate to his story and he also will give you encouragement and answers to how to make generosity a lifestyle and how it will affect you. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Bob DePasquale is with me today, and you are going to enjoy this interview. He has always believed in taking care of the things he had been blessed with by helping others do the same. How many of you can relate to that? I think many of us. His perspective derived from his battle with cancer and his life being threatened at the age of 18. So take it away, Bob, and tell us your compelling story. Thanks, Carol. I appreciate the opportunity to speak. And I, I do believe that story is the most powerful form of communication in the world. And those of us who are able to share their message through story uh, tend to have a, have a great responsibility of influence. So hopefully my story does that well for, for you all today listening. When I was 18, you mentioned earlier, my life changed quite a bit. And unexpectedly, and I don't know about you, Carol, but when I was 18, I, I thought I was invincible. I thought I couldn't be taken down. I think nothing can go wrong in life when you're 18, right? So I was moving up to college. I live in, in South Florida in a town called Fort Lauderdale here in, in the States. And it's a great place to live. The weather is beautiful. The people are nice. The It's a, such a diverse area. You learn so much about the world. But either way, I still wanted to get away for college. I love my parents, but I, I needed to do my own thing. I was an only child, kind of cooped up for a while. But I went up to Hofstra University, which is in Long Island, New York, for three reasons I went up there. One was, and there's no specific order, at least I didn't think there was an order at the time, but I, I went up there to, I had an opportunity to play football, I had an opportunity to get an education, and I also would be closer to my family that was all from up in that area of the country. And I, I think my parents probably would have guessed or hoped that education was primary on that list, but I, I'm, if I'm being honest, it probably wasn't. However, really did I find out a little bit later that there was a fourth reason why I was actually up there. And so I mentioned I was playing football and, and football training camp in college lasts about a month long. So we're there earlier before yeah. the school year even starts. 
about a month. And so you have an opportunity to meet some people. There's some other athletes and people on the campus, but mostly you're training. You're working really, really hard. And the first couple of days of training camp, I thought I had, I was playing really well. I, in fact, I had some positive feedback from coaches. I felt really good. And it was one of those things where it, it kind of fed my, that ego that I referenced a little bit earlier. But unfortunately, there was a period of time where I ended up getting a groin injury and at least what we thought it was. And then, you know, if anyone out there has ever pulled a groin muscle, it is the, right. one of the most debilitating things that you can possibly think of. When you can't stand, sit up, lay down, I twist around. It's very, very hard to even move at times, no less play a sport. So I would be doing this rehab exercise on any given morning uh, during training camp. And there's a hundred people running around this loud training room with noise and music and coaches and players and all this stuff going on at 5 6 o'clock in the morning before a training camp practice. And at one point our head trainer stood up on a box and he was, he was a small guy, you know, maybe five, six, not, not too, not too big of a guy and had to stand up and scream to get people's attention. Well, <laughs> at one point it felt like it was dead silent and he, it wasn't, but it just felt like that. This is how I remember it. And he stood up on the box and he said, Bobby, they called me Bobby at the time. He said, you need to get back onto the field, quit acting like a weakling. Huh. And I mean, that was quite a shot to my 18 year old ego. I thought no I was kidding. Doing pretty well. And he called me out in front of all the coaches and team and, and other trainers and people that were in there. And I, and I, this exercise that I was doing was just awkward. I, I would sit on his three wheeled stool and have to shimmy across the room. So I probably looked ridiculous trying to do this. And I guess it was supposed to strengthen the muscles around my hips in that area to, to do some rehab for what I thought was a groin injury. But anyway, I told Rick, I said, Rick, you know, I'm not being a weakling on purpose. I feel like one, but something's wrong. And he said, all right, let me send you to a doctor. And when I told my teammates I had a private meeting with Rick, they were throwing, they were like, wait a minute, you talked with him privately? Like they knew something <laughs> like that. <laughs> like no one talks to Rick. No one sits in Rick's office and talks to him. So anyway, I would be driving around for the next week. I drove around just about every day by myself. Now I'm 18, so I'm technically an adult, but I'm in New York and Long Island and traffic and people and doing things in a place I've never been before away from home. And if you've ever been to the doctor before and you sit down and you go to a doctor for the first time, you got to fill out all this paperwork. It would, I mean, I'd be at these appointments for hours. I don't know anything about insurance and numbers and all this other stuff that I, medical history that I would have to fill out. Then I would go into the appointment and they would run every test in the book on me. I mean, I had CAT scans, ultrasounds, sonograms, MRIs, you name it. And they wow. were trying to figure out what was wrong. Wow. And the day of what was supposed to be my last appointment that I figured I'd, I didn't even know what other tests they could probably give me, but they finally decided, or I, I finally came to this final appointment and it was on a Thursday, the day that my parents were supposed to be coming up for my first college football game, which would have been Saturday, a couple days after that. Now we knew I wasn't playing in the game at this point, but they were coming up anyway and I hadn't seen them in a while and they knew something was wrong. And I expected to be in this doctor's appointment that morning for another few hours at least. And that's when their flight was. And they weren't expecting to be able to talk with me right away. But my mom had called me. And prior to that, I, I went into the, the, meeting, the office there and I expected to be there a while. They called me right in. I mean, I didn't even sit down. I went down into the office. I sat down at, at a desk in the office there. And within just a couple of minutes, not even maybe 
maybe 30 seconds, the doctor walks in and he looks, looks and sits down, looks at me and says, Bob, you have cancer. Oh my word. And Carol, I, I, I couldn't even tell you what my reaction was. I, I was like numb. My, my, my jaw must've hit the desk. I didn't know what to say. I, I, I was just flabbergasted. And he said to me, don't worry. I know you're probably in shock, but we're going to hook you up with an oncologist and we'll talk soon. And I thought to myself, I don't even know what an oncologist is. Like, right. what? <laughs> I had all these questions, but I couldn't say anything. I was just dead silent. And I walked out of the office in shock. And the moment I walked out of the building, it was like divine timing. I can't even explain it. The moment I walked out of the building, my phone rang. And it was my mother. And she's like, hey, I didn't expect you to be able to answer. I figured you'd be in this appointment getting some tests or whatever. But I just want to let you know we landed. We're okay. We're in the car on the way to your uncle's house. And she's like, but while I have you, how'd the appointment go? And I was like, well, mom, uh, about that. And I I had to tell her what the doctor said. And, you know, Carol, as silent as it was when Rick called me out in front of my entire team, it was just as silent in that moment, of course. except I felt like my mom was screaming. Um, and the only thing I remember hearing is my dad on the other end saying, Susan, Susan, what, you know, what happened? Like, even he could tell something was wrong right, by her reaction. Right, right. So we met back at my uncle's house and I gave my parents a big hug. I mean, I had never been away from home for a month before. So that in itself was already a little unique (laughs) and we kind of looked at each other and said what's going on like we didn't we didn't know what to do we we said some prayers we shed some tears and we just had to really think about it that evening and we did end up getting in contact with an oncologist who told me not to drop out of my college classes yet you know we'll figure out what we need to do to treat this especially if you want to stay up in new york and so a couple days went by and it was saturday now, the day of what was supposed to be my first game that I, that I wasn't playing in at this point, and my uncle's best friend came over his house. And we don't know the guy. His name was Tim. And we're from Florida. He's from New York. Uncle's best friend. Never seen the guy before in my life. And the first thing he does is introduce himself to my parents, and he walks over to them. And if you can see what I'm doing right now, he, he almost sticks his keys like in their face. And he's like, Bob, Susan, I cannot imagine what you're going through right now with your son. Take my car for as long as you could possibly need it while you're up here. And he gave them his car. And we were so surprised. I thought to myself, wow, that's the most generous thing someone has ever done for my family and I. And that was it. He was there for maybe 15 minutes, Carol. And he left. He said goodbye to my aunt, my uncle, and he was gone. And we're like, wow, who is this guy? (laughs) And my uncle's like, yeah, that's Tim. So a couple more days go by, and I I went to my first ever college class. Thanks, Thank you to Tim's car. I was able to drive there. And my parents are still there. You know, we're staying at my uncle's. We came home and tried to figure out what we were going to do. The next day comes and I went to my second ever college class. And when I came out, I was hungry. And I went to the cafeteria and I'm sitting in the cafeteria eating a breakfast burrito, watching television. Now, this 
television I was watching was maybe eight inches wide. It was an old school tube television, uh-huh. you know, not a fl- flat screen uh-huh. by any means. And it was hanging, if you can picture this, from a bracket in the corner of the ceiling and the wall, in a, you know, in a public cafeteria. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I'm young and healthy and my eyes are fine, but I'm like squinting to watch the TV. But as I'm looking at it, a plane crashed into one of the towers in downtown Manhattan. Oh, my Lord. And I... I was like, wow, that what a horrible accident. <laughs> so I called my dad. I said, Dad, did you, are you watching the news? And he's like, yeah, I'm watching the news. And I'm thinking, like, I don't even watch the news. No less do I know what the channels are because I'm in a new place. But it was just riveting. And then all of a sudden, when we were talking for less than a minute, and a second plane hit the other twin tower of the World Trade Center in Manhattan there, and the terrorist attacks of 9-11 had happened. And my dad was like, this is not an accident, Bobby. You better hightail it back to your uncle's house. So I ran out of that cafeteria, even though I was still in pain. I don't even, with my, what was not a groin injury at this point, (laughs) but I don't know how I did, but I I felt like I sprinted out of that cafeteria. I left the burrito there. It's probably still sitting there. (laughs) And I hopped in the car. It took me nine hours to drive what was typically a 15 minute drive from school. Oh my goodness. Yes. And I'm driving in incredible traffic, people trying to get out of New York, burning towers in in the very, very distance. And I subsequently, after all this happened, we can talk more about this later, but I actually have a master's degree in broadcast journalism and I worked in AM radio. And I spent a lot of time on the radio, but that nine hours is the only time ever in my life that I've ever spent nine straight hours listening to AM radio. And it was riveting. I ended up pulling into my uncle's neighborhood nine hours later. It's dark now, practically. And I ran out of gas in his neighborhood. I can't imagine if I would have ran out of gas on the highway. Thankfully, we made it into the neighborhood. We pushed my car or pushed the car into into my uncle's driveway. And we thought, wow, just a couple days ago, I realized that my life might be over. And now it feels like the world is coming to an end. No kidding. That's a a tremendous word picture you've painted us. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll never forget. So my, my aunt was hysterical though. Like I was happy just to be back at the house, but my aunt was hysterical because my uncle was on business the night before in Denver and he was supposed to fly home to New York that morning. And we didn't know what was going on yet. We, we didn't, I mean, the cell phones were out. There was just chaos. And finally the phone rings at you know, maybe eight o'clock at night. And he, it was my uncle and he's like, oh, guys, listen, I'm really sorry. I've been trying to get through, but I can't. The phones are crazy. I heard about what happened. I'm stuck in Denver. Don't worry. I'm okay. I'm going to try to catch a flight tomorrow. And we were like, oh, thank God. This is great. He's okay. So at least some good news. But he's, but he, we were going to hang up. And before we did, he's like, well, wait a minute. I got to tell you all something. Uh, unfortunately, my best friend, Tim, who you all met a few days ago, he was in the towers this morning and he died. Oh. And we looked at each other and said, wow, what a guy. And it turns out that Tim was an extremely generous person. And he would say, you know, we never know when our last opportunity to be generous will be. 
So he would do things all the time to be extremely generous. And he worked for Cantor Fitzgerald, a investment bank that you may have heard of. They lost everyone that morning in the terrorist attacks. Hundreds of people worked in the in the building. And they were a very generous organization themselves. In fact, they would give off office space for free to my uncle's foundation, which raises awareness and money for cystic fibrosis, a disease that my cousin has. And so everyone from Cannon Fitzgerald perished. And the only lady that would typically be that early, be in the office that early for the foundation, her name is Tammy. She was uncharacteristically late that morning, got caught in the subway underneath. And the stories, she survived, and the stories that she tells Carol are amazing. It's just fascinating what, what she went through. And the, and the reason why she was late was just one of the silliest things in the world. I mean, she she had to go back and grab something like that she would never forget. And it just reminds me all the time that we really don't know right. when our last moments will be. That's and right. I think one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful thing that we can do for people in this world is just to be generous. And so that's why generosity is so important in my life, because Tim, plus a couple other things that happened to me subsequently after the after the terrorist attacks really saved my life. And here I am today, a survivor of cancer. Uh, I wouldn't call myself a survivor of 9-11 because I wasn't there, but I experienced it in a unique way. And it just reminds me all the time that we don't really know when our last moments will be. And so I try, I'm not perfect, but I try ever since then uh, to be as generous a person as I can possibly be. Well, that story is, I'd like to say riveting, but that's not a strong enough word. Impactful. It definitely touched me. I think every single person who is was alive at that time and is still alive today remembers where they were and what happened when those planes hit the the towers. And I have interviewed people on this show who were in close proximity as well. But the way that you shared your story and the word picture that you painted shows the positive side of what you experienced as a result of that, along with your cancer and all the other shocks that you went through, your family went through, your system, your nervous system went through. So we're going to switch gears now because the next part is who you are and as a result of what happened to you. So the first thing I would like you to share is what is the giving mindset? You've already laid it out, but just expound a bit more. The giving mindset is a journey, really, the way I look at it. So people have asked me before, you know, was that moment in your life when you were diagnosed or when 9-11 happened or just that period of five days, you know, was that the transformation in your life? And I always tell them no, because I don't think transformation happens overnight or in one moment or even in five days. It's a journey. It's a process. And so for me, the generous mindset is something that I've been trying to build on for 20 something years now. When that happened to me, I was absolutely in shock and it took me from the highest point of my life thinking that I was invincible, like I talked about, all the way down into do I even have a life or is the world even a thing anymore? Uh And so when I talk about the generous generous mindset or generous culture, if you're an organization, it's about building 
on the things that you learn and helping other people do the same as you work through whatever it is, whether it's life with a partner or spouse, whether it were family, kids, parents, or whether it's with the people that you work with or lead at work, or maybe you're trying to do some philanthropic charitable type of activities and you're trying to get a group of people together. It, it, it's a journey because you have to learn and get better and develop that skill and muscle along the way. When I, the moment all that happened and I thought about Tim, immediately I started thinking more about being generous, but I wasn't great at it right away. And I don't even know if I would call myself great at it now. I just know that I'm better. And I think that's all that matters. You can't really uh-huh. compare it to uh-huh. other people. You got to compare it to your former, former self. And I think progress is extremely important and perfection is impossible. So when you talk about the generous mindset, uh, it's something that you build on. And so it didn't, it wasn't like the moment or later that year or semester of college that I, I was suddenly this extremely giving person or that I really had anything to give at that point in my life. Most of I, I really needed to be a taker for a few months there to go through my treatment and you know understand. And then I had to learn school. And then I ended up going back on the sports field, which was great. But really, every so often in my life, I look back and I notice how I have made that progress. And so the generous mindset is a, it's, it's something that you live by and wish wish to improve as you go along. And it doesn't have to be extravagant. I mean, I, I really need to stress that. You, you know, in my professional world, I, you know, I work with quite a few philanthropic families, but that's not a definition of net worth or wealth. You don't, to be philanthropic or a giving person, it doesn't mean $100 million. It's really about the mindset. And some of us mm. in certain seasons of life, like when I was a college student, later in my college years, when I started figuring out what I was good at in life and where my skills were, Giving was about giving my time and maybe some knowledge. Uh-huh. And some resources. It wasn't always about money. In fact, it's really probably less than a quarter of the time about money for most people. And it really should be that way. So the giving mindset is a, is a journey and it's something that we can do to help make the world a better place. So in the research that you have done, would you say that generally that more people lean towards the selfish or the generous side? Oh, that's a great question, Carol. So this is how I'll answer it. I, I, I don't know if I don't know if I have data. Well, I know I don't have specific data to say this or to say that to give you a perfect answer. But, uh, you know, I alluded to my career in radio before when I was telling the story and I, I, I did work in radio for a short period of time. And part of the reason why I left left that career is because the radio conglomerate that I was working for was participating in what I would say, you know, not illegal, but maybe some questionable business practices that was a little bit more greedy on the end of greedy and instead of generous. And so I ended up putting it off for a while. It's a whole other story. I'll, I'll spare you the time. But ultimately, I was recruited into the financial industry. And the kicker is when I went into the financial industry, I expected there to be a bunch of greedy people out there. And part of my reason for this transition was, is like, well, if people in the radio business and media business are greedy. I bet you they're super greedy in the financial business. And I'm going to go take this head on and I'm going to be the savior of the world, at least in the financial industry. This is the financial world because I'm going to make people think more generously. And to my surprise and and really joy was A, the, the organization I was working for was extremely generous, but a lot, and I counseled thousands of families over the years. Huh. A lot of them are most people are generous in fact i believe humans are built in it with a generous mindset somewhere in their psyche like it's inherently 
desirable for them to support other people, specifically their family and friends, but also others, right? It, it's scientific. And this, I have, I have plenty of data on this. Like it actually, it's psychologically good to be a generous person. It feels good and we have an inerrant desire. The problem is, is in today's society, I think there's so many distractions and things uh. that tell us that we're not good enough. We need more self-help books. We need to listen to Bob talk about positive psychology more. We need more podcasts. We need more just resources because we're not good enough and we should spend our money on getting better. When I believe most of us are highly, highly equipped to already be extremely generous and helpful to the world. And so if we can believe that, we're much more likely to be in the generous mindset. And so I was pleasantly surprised that there's a lot of people that want to be generous. Uh, and I figured out though, that they don't think they're capable of it. And that's really painful to me. So now a lot of the work that I do now is helping people realize their capacity to be generous. What a great answer to my question. <laughs> Thank you. That re that answered a lot of questions regarding what we're going to be talking about next, and that mm -hmm. is generosity as a lifestyle, and also how online advertising affects us, along with your book. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. With me today on Never Ever Give Up Hope, Bob DePasquale is talking about his own experience regarding a complete and total life change when cancer and 9-11 affected him personally as a young man. In this next part, we're going to talk with Bob about how online advertising affects us. We're going to talk about personal finance in a public world and how often and how much we are affected by our devices. When I read the statement that you made, Bob, the question actually, which said, are you aware that we tap, swipe, and click our devices on average of 2,617 times a day. I about fell off my chair. So <laughs> let's start there and please share what you want to share regarding that. So I'm highly qualified to talk about this, Carol, because my wife will tell you I'm addicted to my phone and my <laughs> devices. So if there's anything that I'm an expert in, it's using digital technology. That's a stat that I found when I was doing some research to write my book. You referenced the name of the book, Personal Finance in a Public World, and it's about how social media ads and technology affect our money decisions. Now, wow. I talked a little bit earlier about the generous mindset, and part of the reason why I wrote this book is because I thought about all the people that I would like to share this message with and, and, and my curiosity about, these, about those subjects. 
And I knew I wouldn't be able to work as closely with the, as, as many people and families that I did because I, I mentioned I got recruited into the financial industry. Well, a couple of years ago, my business partner and I, who was just a colleague at the time, decided to leave our organization and start our own wealth management firm focused on generosity. But I knew that all that time and effort to start a company and suddenly become a business owner and not just a business person would take quite a bit of time. And I wouldn't be able to, in that business model, counsel and work with as many families. So I wanted to share this message. And I was like, well, one great way to do it, to produce something that's evergreen, unless the laws and rules totally change, uh, would be to write a book. So I decided to write this book. And in my research, I found out that statistic. And it blew me away, too. And what was profound about it was I expected myself, and I mean, maybe this is my ego talking, but I expected myself to just dump 12, 13 years of experience in the industry <laughs> into a notebook. I thought maybe I went back, maybe I started getting a little bit back to that 18-year-old invincible mindset, but maybe applying it in a more business sense, less, less athletic and more intellectual. And I thought I was just going to dump all this knowledge in this book and then a gazillion people were going to buy it and not even buy it. I would have given it away. It really wasn't about me. It's not about, it wasn't about making money at the time. It was just about sharing that information because I thought I had all this to share. But I get the best advice I ever got was it's not about what you know, Bob. It's about what you want to know. But you're passionate and people relate to that. They, they want to be part of that passion, correct? Yes, I, I have found that. And, and leaning into the passion is important. And so that drove me to do the research. I spent umpteen hours researching and interviewing 60 plus people to find out information. And what I realized was, I, yeah, I know the financial stuff, some of it. I mean, by Malcolm Gladwell's definition of 10,000 hours, I'm probably an expert three times over in that area. But that doesn't mean a thing if I don't know anything about technology and social media and the ad space and all of those other things that we, that I talk about in the book. So I spent a lot of time researching either technology or psychology. And when I was researching those, that's where I came across that statistic. And it struck me that we are incredibly distracted. And it's sad that there's a lot of people out there that I used to work with, and I still some now that I work with, not as many, but they really have a generous heart. And they want to be giving people. They want to give back to the world and society and their family and even strangers. They want to go across the world and help people that are in completely different cultures. But they feel that they're incapable of it because all of those other messages that social media and technology provide for them are wholly distracting. And so right. the book is designed to help you make those tools positive because they're very, very strong. I don't think anyone would disagree that they're powerful tools, but I only believe that they're tools. And so it's up to us to use them in the right way. Now, are there steps or how is your book bro broken down? It's broken into three sections. The first section presents my argument, if you will, that social media is and technology are extremely powerful, but that we can, they, it can be used for good. And there are some steps and tips on how to use technology just in general, just for your general life in the first few chapters of this section. The second section, each chapter in the second section is a different 
financial topic. So it could be investing, could be cryptocurrency, could be insurance, it could be budgeting, debt. I cover all those different personal finance topics and I teach you how to use technology as a positive force in those areas of your life. So that middle section is somewhat of a, a, a reference book. Like you can go back, it's, it's, you do absolutely read it through in order first, but you could always go back to one of those chapters if, if one of those ends up being an issue or something you have a question about. And then the final section uh, is really a, without spoiler alert, you know, without giving the whole thing away, the final section brings it all together from a psychological perspective and it, it will teach you why the relationships that we have in our life uh, are the most important when it comes to managing these things. And your relationship with yeah. people is one thing and your relationship with money is another. Your relationship with people is one thing and your relationship with money is another. Someone once told me many, many years ago that all you have to do is look at someone's checkbook and you'll understand their passion. Mm. I like that one because you can really see what they're, where they're putting their money exactly. and that'll tell you what they're interested exactly. in, right? Expound a bit more. Share a bit more, whatever you would like to share. And in, in, as a word of encouragement, possibly to people who are very concerned, as many are right now, where we're living, how we're living, is become totally different than it was five years ago. Yes, absolutely. It, the world's a little bit different now, or a lot different now than it was. Well, I, I would say this, maybe even if you need to, and I hate to do this to you, Carol, but pause the podcast just for a minute if you have to, if you don't want to get fall behind. Pause the podcast and think about, just for 30 seconds maybe, think about what are the things that are most important in your life. Hmm. And I find that a lot of people don't really do this exercise often enough. I try to do it at least weekly. I try to just, you know what? Let me just take a quick step back. So pause it. If you're driving, don't close your eyes. <laughs> Be safe. But pause it. And just think about the things that are most important. It could be your family. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a, maybe it is a specific charitable cause that's really meaningful to you or your family. Think about those items, right? And then open your eyes or go back to whatever you were doing. Do that periodically. And the reason why I say this is because I think we in the back of our minds know those things are important to us and it probably didn't take you very long to think of them but all those messages and distractions that we have in the world we'll see that message 15 times and you'll read about it in the book because the algorithm and the application that you're using is designed to feed you what you want to see whether you realize you told the algorithm right, or not right. the way you interact with that device says I want to hear about this thing. So if you look at my devices, Carol, I've done my best to turn off different tracking things just to, you know, that, you know, that not accept cookies, those sort of things. And it's all technical stuff. But if you just want to, if you really want to learn a lot about me, yeah, you could probably look at the checkbook, but you could also look at my device and you can learn. I love fantasy sports. I love competition. So the algorithms are constantly and the companies are constantly trying to sell me right. stuff related to sports entertainment. And I could easily, easily spend 90% of the money I have on that stuff, but I got to learn to not do that and use the technology for good. So the message I'm sharing is make sure you keep the things that are most important top of mind and don't get distracted from those things by what the world says that you need. 
I like that. And one thing that I share a lot when I am teaching is stop. Just stop. And I think that's essentially one of the messages that you're saying here is stop what you're doing, pause, think, reflect, whatever. We get so caught up, whether it's our devices or just life in general or even driving down the highway, that we don't take time to just stop. Stop and listen. Stop and reflect. Is that also one of the messages that you are are sharing? Absolutely. It just pause, stop, whatever word you want to use. Okay. Take the time to consider the things that are most important. And I guarantee you, and I can't guarantee much working in the financial industry, so I gotta be careful how I use this <laughs> word. I will guarantee, I guarantee you that if you stop and pause and take time to think about the things that are most important in your life more, just think about them. If you do that more, I guarantee you, you'll spend more time taking action related to those things. It's, it's bound to happen. It's proven that the mind will take action on the things that it's thinking about. Very well stated. In summary, what would you like to share, either as encouragement or a bit more about your book? Now, all the, uh, all your links, your social media links, and the links for your book, etc., will, will be in the show notes. But if there is anything else that you would like to share, please share it with our audience. You have immense ability to make a positive impact in the world. And my favorite quote that I ever heard was at a concert, and it was actually before the story that I told earlier, but I didn't realize its significance until afterwards. And that is, you may not change the world, but you may change the world for one. That's exactly what my husband said to me when I didn't know if I should write my book or not. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> and that was so you, 15 years ago. <laughs> wow. So awesome. I'm, I'm writing that down again. So you may not change the world, but... You may change the world for one. And yes. that, ladies and gentlemen, is most important. I, you using what you have right. to help whoever you can help. And that touched me deeply as I just shared. So thank you for that. Well, thank you, Bob DePasquale, for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. This has been encouraging, most definitely, and I trust that it will bring hope to those who are possibly struggling in some of the areas, whether it's a cancer diagnosis or the finances. I mean, you touched on a lot of different things, and I appreciate that you never gave up that you have an encouraging word to share, especially needed more now than ever. So thank you again, Bob, for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. Appreciate it, Carol. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope, featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.